Good morning, SSV. Uh, good morning to those of you who are joining us online as well. So good to be here. Like my lovely wife said, in case you didn't know, that is my darling wife, Shannon. Uh, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard. Special welcome to anybody who is joining us for the very first time. So good to see you and some new faces. <laughs> even, yeah, Larry Larson. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a little rattled. Larry was one of my mentors as a young pastor, young preacher, and so it's good to see you here this morning. Larry didn't mean to put you on the spot, but there you go. <laughs> so glad to see all of you here today. And of course, thank you uh, for those of you who are joining us online. It's so glad to have you here in the building. One quick note before I get started. You might have noticed, I hope you noticed on your way in, you were greeted by our fantastic First uh, Impressions team. We, we, can you give them a hand? And Esteban and Sister Judy greeted you on the way in. And who you didn't see today was uh, Michelle Halliburton, who leads that ministry, who does a fantastic job of scheduling and juggling. So let's give Michelle a hand and give her some love in the comments. I also want to mention that that's one of the, that's one of the ministries that we desperately need more volunteers. And so we know many of you are very comfortable cu coming in person. For those of you who aren't quite ready yet, this doesn't apply to you. But if you're watching us at home, and if you're here today and you are coming in person regularly, we would love to have some folks uh, join that team so that we can give our regulars a rest and so we can just have a fresh rotation on that team. And so if you're interested, and even if you're not interested, if you're willing to serve, on the First Impressions team, you can just simply uh, talk to one of us, you can uh, fill out a connect card and let us know that way, or you can email info at South Suburban Vineyard and we'll get those requests uh, or those interests to Michelle Halliburton and she'll get you in the rotation. Amen? Amen. Well, let me begin the message today. Let me get into the Word today. Every now and then I see my favorite meme cycle up on social media and uh, the other day, my favorite meme cycled up, and I laughed as if I had seen it for the very first time. And this is what it says. It says, when I die, I want my group project members to lower me into the grave so they can let me down one last time. <laughs> and of course, this is a reference. If you've ever been on a group or a team project at work or team project in your science class or in speech class, you know that if three or more are gathered, in that group is going to be somebody that doesn't pull their end of the bargain. And typically, you can find out who that person is just really at the beginning of the group, right? And you say, listen, we're going to give Dave, all he needs to do is bring the colored pencils, right? And what does Dave do? He doesn't have to research anything. He doesn't have anything. All he has to do is bring the colored pencils, and he doesn't bring the pencils. We've all been let down by somebody, right? So every time I see this meme, I laugh as if it's the first time I've seen it because it highlights this truth. There's really only two kinds of people in the world, right? At the risk of oversimplifying all of humanity. There's really only two kinds of people in the world. They're the folks that you can count on and the folks that you can't. I'll say that again. There's really only two types of people in the world. There are folks that you can count on and folks you can't. Now, this doesn't speak to how much I like or love somebody. This is a totally different category because I like folks that I don't count on. I love people with deep affection and great affinity for folks who I don't trust because I don't count on them. I can't count on them to be on time. I can't count on them to show up for me in my life when the stakes are high. And this reveals the basic truth about people. We all, right, want folks that we can count on. 
And I think that this truth rings true in our life with a faith in God. When it comes to faith, particularly our Christian faith, I don't think it's out of bounds to say that we all want a God that we can count on, a God that'll show up in those high and low stakes moments, a God that we can trust. In fact, it's true that our faith comes to a screeching halt if it ever gets off the ground to begin with, if it's lacking in a confident trust in God our Father. And when we look at the scriptures and when we look at the life of Jesus, one of the things we notice, if we have eyes to see it, is that Jesus seemed to have a deep and abiding, confident trust in God his Father. And so I believe that if we want to grow in trust for God, if we want to come to know God as somebody who we can trust, a God that we can trust, I think we only need to look at the life of Jesus. And it's for that reason that I'm continuing a series that we started last week, a series that we're calling The God That Jesus Knew. And this series is based loosely on a book called The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryant Smith. And in his book, Smith challenges us to consider the idea that we can easily think about God in a way that is not entirely biblical. In other words, many of us have been miseducated about God. Uh, Some of us have lacked significant helpful instruction on how to relate to God. And so therefore, we filled in the gaps with conjecture. We filled in the space, and oftentimes, what we use to fill in that space uh, comes from our interactions with other humans, which is a huge mistake, right? Because God is so unlike us. It's a huge mistake to fill in the gaps of our understanding of God with our relationships with other people, but many of us have been miseducated and our understanding of who God is, our knowledge of God and how he works, particularly how he relates to us and how we should relate to him, we've got this serious miseducation. So because of that, this series we're choosing to look at how Jesus taught and interacted with God because there's something significant about seeing God from Jesus' vantage point. I'll say that again, there's something significant, helpful, dare I say necessary, about seeing God from Jesus's vantage point. And last week, Pastor David opened this series with his message called God is Good, and he framed God's goodness as square one for those of us who believe in God. That is to say that if we don't square away that we serve a good God, everything else crumbles. If we don't build our foundation of our knowledge of God on the fact that God is first good, then everything else will crumble. He talked to us about the mysterious nature of God's goodness. Never quite heard it framed that way. He identified the fact that oftentimes God's goodness seems to be unevenly applied and unfairly distributed, and many of us have an issue with that. But I love that he closed with the fact that experiencing God is a choice that we must make. We must choose to see God and his goodness in the right way. And today I want to continue. I want to build upon what he started last week. I want to continue this series by talking about the importance of trust. Somebody say trust. Somebody else say trust. I want to continue by talking about the importance, the necessity of trust, particularly trust in God, knowing that God can't, He can't not be trustworthy. Whether you trust him or not, that's up to you. But God cannot 
let you down. Notice I didn't say God can't disappoint you. God will often disappoint because disappointment is based on my expectations or what I come to the table with, but God cannot, he cannot let us down. He can disappoint you, but since his ways are higher and he sees around corners and heaven's vantage is better than our vantage, he can't let us down. And so that should foster trust in God our Father. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Now, why is the scriptures filled with so much instruction on the necessity of trusting God? It's filled with so much instruction because trusting God is hard. It's hard. Trust God you can't see. It's hard when the circumstances speak louder than the truth of God's word. It's downright hard to understand God in the way that he deserves to be understood because a lot of how we relate to the world is based on experience, but the scripture tells us to trust in God. Jesus knew God is trustworthy, and I want to walk down that path this morning. I'm simply calling this message, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. And the goal of this message today, I'll give you the sermonic idea up front. The goal is that we would attain, to grasp, and retain, to keep, an abiding faith in the trustworthiness of God our Father. That we would attain, to grasp, and retain, keep, an abiding faith in the trustworthiness of of God our Father. I'm going to look at a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 26. Go ahead and meet me there in your Bibles this morning. Feel free to also follow along in your, with your phones or your mobile devices, and we'll also be projecting the words on the screens, particularly for those of you following at home. Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to start at verse 36 and go through verse 46. While you find that, let me pray. Lord, would you help us to trust you this morning? Help us to trust you. Simple prayer this morning. We need instruction. We need help. May we doubt our doubts when it comes to you. May we doubt our doubts when it comes to you. Father, in the room this size, the folks coming in all walks of life, dealing with all manners of things, and I know that somebody in this room, perhaps all of us, need some instruction from heaven as to how to trust you more. So may the book come alive to us this morning as we walk through your word. God, put power on these words you've given me to speak this morning. May your truth and your light shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to start at verse 36. And as you read with me today, I want you to pay close attention as we read. I want you to notice what you notice, notice what stands out. And if you're in the chat section today, go ahead and uh, let us know what stands out as we read through this today. And so Jesus, the Son of God, has come and ministered powerfully on the earth, and he's nearing the time where he will be handed over to his uh, accusers, he'll be tortured, killed, and he'll die, uh, die on the cross. And what we'll see as Jesus nears this moment is that this is starting to become real to him, right? He's starting to feel it. It's starting to impact his emotions. And we uh, encounter these strong emotions 
in this particular episode of Scripture, Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Verse 40. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest, but look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's go. Look, my betrayer is here. And so I, I certainly can't be the only one that notices that this is a heavy text, right? Uh, this is an emotional passage of Scripture. It's distressing because we see Jesus in this tender moment. What'd you notice? What stood out? If you're in the chat, go ahead and type that there. I'll be the first to say this morning that I am glad this account is contained within the record of Scripture. In fact, it's true that three of the four Gospels include this particular episode of Jesus' life. And if I can be candid this morning, I'll say, on the one hand, I'm a little uncomfortable seeing the Savior this way. Can I say that? I'm a little uncomfortable seeing my Savior this way. I'm struggling a bit to see Jesus in this sort of way. Why am I struggling? I'm struggling because Jesus usually presents himself in such an even way, right? Jesus usually presents himself in, in, in a rather unbothered way. He's buttoned up, as my friend Pastor Thaddeus would say. He's usually pretty buttoned up. And if you've ever had a friend or a parent or a coworker or, or a sibling that is typically always calm, it bothers you to see them rattled. Anybody know somebody who's always got it together, somebody who's always handling things in a really even matter, the, the roughest storms of life come through, and they're just like, we got it, it'll be okay, right? And when that person gets rattled, you get rattled. When you see that person crying, you say, the sky must be falling because that person is typically quite buttoned up. That's the kind of moment I'm having as I interact with this text. I'm uncomfortable. But on the other hand, I'm so grateful to see Christ this way. I'm so grateful to see him a little rattled. And I don't mean to take any liberties with this text. I hope I stop short of doing that. But it comforts me to see Christ in this way. It comforts me to see him walking out faith and obedience in such a human way because after all, Jesus is the incarnate deity, the Word made flesh. And oftentimes we forget about that flesh aspect, that he was both fully God and fully human. 
And so it shouldn't surprise us that as he goes to this really dark place, he's, he's facing this gnarly suffering that's ahead, it shouldn't surprise us that our human Savior is a bit rattled. It comforts me because even though I try to be pretty buttoned up, there are times, there are moments, there are episodes of my life where I just can't keep it together. Well, I'm rattled, I'm worried, I'm anxious. And if Jesus could get rattled, I don't feel too bad about getting rattled. Amen? So in this passage, we see Jesus, he's fussing with his disciples because they're too sleepy to pray like us. And that's a whole other message. But we see Jesus relating to God in his darkest hour when the stakes are really high. And since we're talking about trust, I think I should mention that trust isn't easily measured in good times. And trust isn't easily measured when we're partying together, right? And the wine's flowing freely, and we're watching the game, and times of peace, the storms haven't come in yet. Uh, that's a bad time to measure trust. That's a bad time to see who you can really count on, right? But when the stakes are high, and the chips are down, and the seas are choppy, then we can more accurately measure trust, confidence deep and abiding faith, and this is a moment of truth for Jesus. So I want to highlight three things today as we consider how to know and relate to God, the God that Jesus knew, particularly as it relates to God's trustworthiness. Jesus shows us three things. The first is that Jesus refers to God as Father. Jesus refers to God as Father. Now this is really important. This salutation is not coincidental. Jesus does nothing haphazardly. Everything is purposefully, purposeful, excuse me, every word is measured. So it means something that he refers to God as Father. Begins all three of his prayers with my Father. That has some weight to it, right? Now, I'm going to put a quarter in the parking meter and just park here for a second because I want to take us to another prayer that Jesus uh, had, and I think this will give us some insight as to how Jesus sees his Father. And it will give us some context for what Jesus means here when he shows up and prays to his Father. I want to look at John chapter 11, and in this passage of Scripture in John chapter 11, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. Disciples come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I think you're skimping on us, bro, because John taught his disciples how to pray. <laughs> you haven't taught us how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus proceeds to give them this mini intensive on how to pray. Verse 2, Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, there it is again, may your name be kept holy and may your kingdom come. I'll read that again. Father... That's important. May your name be kept holy. That's important. And may your kingdom come. Now let's pause before we get to the rest of the prayer. Jesus is relating to God. But so far, up until this point in the prayer, we only see God as a God that's in charge. Father, that's authority. He's in charge. He is holy. 
He has a kingdom, which means he's in charge. He's Lord of this kingdom. Up until this point, we only see God as in charge. We have no indication yet that this powerful in-charge God even cares for us, that we even matter to him, that he's bothered by the needs that we have and the suffering we face and the fears and anxieties we have. We only, in these first few words, get a sense that this God is in charge and he's not to be messed with. But there's a second half to this prayer. Jesus continues, give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sins against us and don't let us yield to temptation. There the rest of it is. First half of that prayer, we see God as a God who's in charge. He's Father. He's holy. Don't mess with him. He's Lord of the kingdom. But I don't know about you, but I tend to zoom in on that second part because Jesus sees God as provider. Give us the food we need for today. Jesus see, sees God as the source of salvation. Forgive us our sins. Jesus sees God as a source of guidance. Lead us not into temptation. And so this is a comprehensive picture. And I've never seen the Lord's Prayer in this way before. A comprehensive picture of how Jesus sees God. And he instructs his disciples and therefore us to pray this way. And he's through this instructing us to see God in this way. Father, holy, in charge, but he's a provider. Salvation comes from him. Our sins are dealt with through him, and he will lead us and guide us into truth away from temptation. What a comprehensive prayer, which reveals a comprehensive picture of how Jesus saw his Father God. And so as we go back to these tiny little prayers that Jesus prays in the garden, hopefully we have some context what Jesus means when he says Father. If you look at this story in Mark's gospel, Mark uses the term Abba Father. Abba Father. And so if you look up that word Abba, some people might tell you that this word kind of loosely translates to our American word Daddy, right? But Abba isn't of Aramaic origin. Some scholars consider it to be a colloquial term of familiarity that Young, a young child would have used, similar to how we use daddy or papa, right? It was and is believed to be a children's word used in everyday talk, and it expressed the heart of Jesus' relationship to God. But other scholars warn us, though, that the term Abba doesn't simply mean daddy, and that our American use of daddy is often void of fear and reverence, Right? When we say daddy, that's a warm, endearing term, uh, but I've heard that word used in enough context to know that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's fear, reverence, and the requisite awe for one's father. And so in my mind, Abba is a potent mix of the word sir and daddy. Sir, denoting like respect, reverence, and leans us toward obedience to the Father. 
Again, we should view this word Abba, or when Jesus says my father, as a mix of sir and daddy, right? Noting that Jesus spoke to God as a child does to its father, confidently, securely, and yet at the same time, reverently and willing to move out in obedience. That's a context for Abba, for this word father. And my question to you, before we press deeper in this, is how do you address God? I know we've been taught to say Father. I know we might have even learned the term Abba when we pray. But does your heart connect with God confidently, securely, reverently, and obediently? You know him as Father, as Holy as Lord, as provider, as Savior, as guide, because this sets the stage. How we come to him, how we understand him, sets the stage for everything else. And Jesus demonstrates in his approach, as he begins these prayers, that he saw God as Abba, as his Father, right? But he doesn't stop there. The second thing I notice in this prayer is that Jesus was honest with his Father. Jesus was honest with his father. Now, this is important because honesty is a powerful side effect of trust. Honesty is a powerful side effect of trust. You typically don't get honesty and that sort of vulnerability in the absence of trust. No matter what you're dealing with or going through, it's pointless to pretend with God. A God that sees all, a God that knows all. God gives us permission, as we said a couple of weeks ago, to bring our raggedy selves to him. And I say that over and over because we've been miseducated. And somebody told you you had to clean yourself up before you came to church. That's as silly as saying, you've been shot, you've got to deal with the wound, wait till the wound stops bleeding, starts to heal before you go to the ER. That's silly, that's laughable, right? In the same way, God does not expect us to clean ourselves up and to present ourselves as already complete and well and whole before we come to him. He wants honesty. And Jesus models this so well. In verse 38, he's talking to his guys, and he basically says, hey, guys, I'm a mess right now. I'm a mess right now. He says so much in verse 38. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. I'm kind of a mess right now, especially relative to how I normally am. Jesus says this, but notice how he comes before the Lord his Father. He prays. He says, Father, if it's possible... Let this cup of suffering be taken from me. If it's possible that any way around this, Lord, there's any deal we can broker or strike where I don't have to go to that bloody cross, if we can work something out, last minute, let's see if we can hook that up. Jesus might have been thinking the story of Abraham as the Lord provided a last-minute solution right before he was to be slaughtered, and maybe he has that on his mind, but he's, he's trying 
to work something out. This is important to me because uh, Jesus presents himself one way to his disciples. I am distressed even to the point of death. And it seems that he brings that same energy to God. In other words, he doesn't switch it up when he has to interact with God. Now, this is important because I've been around the church my whole life, and I interact with people on one hand, and then when they pray, some of them, I do not recognize them. You ever just been with somebody hanging out with them and you had dinner and you say, hey, Dave, can you pray for the meal? And all of a sudden, some accent comes out of nowhere. <laughs> God, we beseech thee <laughs> that we might come near to thy throne of God. Like, what the British accent? <laughs> but that's a, that's a learned behavior. Because some of us We've learned that we gotta, we got to get into a different mode and talk with a different voice because God, of course. He wasn't around when we were talking in our other voice. We've got to clean ourselves up somehow. And I love that Jesus said he was distressed when he was talking to his boys and brought that same energy and that same honesty in his, in his prayer with the Lord. Now, that might seem like a small thing to you, but it's not small. It's not small. Excuse me. I'm struck by this. The honesty. Now I feel this in a powerful way because Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he come to earth to do. And he has to grasp the far-reaching implications of the cross, what the cross would accomplish. And since he grasped these things, he also has to grasp what it would mean for him not to go to the cross. And yet he asks. The cross is like, if the cross doesn't happen, that's the ball game. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, it's over for you and me. And yet he asks. Jesus, he asks. What might this give us permission to say? What comfort might this allow us to come before the Lord in unedited, honest, candid, gritty ways and present ourselves as we are to God? Three separate times he says, Lord, if there's another way May it be so. And again, I'm treading carefully here because I don't want to take any liberties with the text. I don't want to put any words or emotions in Jesus' you know, mouth or heart. Um, I'm being really delicate because it's our desire here to not take liberties with the Scriptures. But I, I feel this today. And some of our, our prayers are useless. They never make it to the ceilings because they lack honesty. They lack a certain forthrightness and candor before the Lord God who already knows, who already sees, who knows our thoughts even afar off, the Scripture says. And not only does he know, he understands. He's a good God. 
He's not just in charge, he cares about us. He's not just sitting high and looking low. It matters to him what we feel. It matters to him that the cancer has come back. It matters to him that the kid isn't acting out. It matters to him that your singleness has you distressed. It matters to him that you've got more month than money. It matters. He knows. So what are you pretending for? What are you talking in a weird voice for? Just say it plainly. He knows. Jesus says, I'm struggling. If you can take this cup, then take it. Can I tell you that I'm convinced that a lot of times my prayers are just a way for me to talk myself clear? Larry, you're a counselor, you know. Sometimes you're saying a lot in those sessions. Oftentimes you're just saying, oh, tell me more about that. (laughs) Oh, tell me a little more about that. And they leave your chair, Larry, and you haven't given them any advice, and they say, thank you so much. You really helped me today. When you've just given them space to talk themselves clear. And many of my prayers, God doesn't answer me. But as I sit in those honest moments in the comfort and candor of my relationship with God, honesty and integrity before him, I talk myself clear. I pray myself clear. The spirit of the living God comes and envelops me in a way that God doesn't have to say a word to me. He doesn't have to give me a prophecy. He doesn't have to write it on the walls. I've just been able to, in those moments of honesty and candor, talk myself clear, and pray myself clear. This is what Jesus happens to him, right? Honesty with God. Because, friends, trust is not the absence of questions for God. But trust is the presence of comfort with God. I say it again. Trust is not the absence of questions for God. But rather, trust is the presence of having comfort. Being comfortable enough to come before the Lord boldly with your true self and lay yourself bare. Jesus models this perfectly. He refers to God as his Father. He comes honestly in his prayers, prays himself clear. And the third thing we see here is that Jesus always yields to the Father's will. Jesus always yields to the Father's will. Now, why is this important? It's important for a couple of reasons. Because you can call him Father all you want. You can even switch to the Aramaic. You call him Abba, you call him Papa. You can say it in Greek, you can say it in Spanish. You can be as honest as you want with him in your prayers. That's helpful and necessary too. But if you don't yield, at the end of all of that, to his will, Do you really trust him? Now, I'm not saying you don't. I'm asking you if you do. You get the lingo right. You can even understand in your heart who he is and how he operates. You can be honest, lay your heart bare, but if you do not yield your will to his, do you really trust him? Now, I wish I could tell you that the preacher, I have a PhD in, in trust. 
and God. Sometimes I do. But oftentimes, if I can just keep it all the way, I'm in remedial classes. I'm like at square one. And I feel bad even saying that with all the history that I have with the Lord. I feel kind of bad saying that with the position that I hold, not just in this church, but in our movement. I'm almost ashamed to say that sometimes, regardless of how it looks on the outside, my posture is not, not my will, but yours be done. Am I the only one who feels like he's at square one with faith and trust? even with all the history that I have with the Lord. Three prayers. Jesus prays three separate times. Father, take this cup. He's rattled. But at the end of each and every one of these prayers, he says, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Second time, he says, your will be done. Text doesn't include the third instance of prayer, but it says very similar to the other ones, Lord, You've heard what I asked, but not what I want, but what you want. And this really matters a lot. Why? Because as Pastor David said last week, God's goodness doesn't always feel good. And God's plans for us, the things he causes and orchestrates, along with the things that he allows, despite his goodness. Oftentimes, they don't feel good. Kind of like the cross, an instrument of torture. It's the best thing that could have ever happened to all humanity. But in that moment... Jesus felt the weight of it, and he didn't want to do it. The cross was the ultimate outworking of the goodness of God, and yet it didn't feel good. Far from it, right? Which tells us that our emotions will often lie to us. Our feelings don't deserve to be in the driver's seat of our faith in Jesus. Because God's goodness often doesn't feel good. I'm struck by what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53 concerning the cross. He says, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. You hear the tension in that? Another translation says, it pleased God to crush his son. That sounds crazy. But here we are today, saved by grace because of the cross. And this is why Jesus says, Lord, you know what I want. I told you three different times. You know what I'd rather not do. I've said it three different times, but I trust you to work your thing out. I yield my will to yours. And because Jesus yields his will, you and I, while we were still in our sin, can receive the uh, salvation. 
the blessed assurance that Jesus is ours and we are his. No matter what you've done or the things you've left undone, because Jesus went to the cross, you and I, yes, you and I, can enjoy eternal life and freedom from our sins and the penalty of our sins. That's good news. But none of that happens if Jesus doesn't yield to God's will. And some of you feel kind of behind the eight ball on this because you go, I don't trust God. And some of you are speaking from a place of disappointment because of what you're experiencing in your life. Others of you would say, I don't trust God because I don't have any history with him. I don't, I, I don't experience him as good. I just, I don't have a track worker with him, so I don't, I don't trust him. And the rest of us are like every place in between. But here's, here's, a, here's some helpful truth for you today. When it comes to trust, particularly trust in God, it usually takes a long time to get good at it. So just relax. It is a journey. A left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, lifelong journey of trusting and leaning and crying and pleading. It's a lifelong journey to press into a place of confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And if you haven't started on that journey, many of you have, why not start today? Why not start today? And worship team, you can come up as I land this thing. I'll say it again, it takes a long time to get good at this. But as we put this all together today, I know that in a room this size, and those of you watching me online, some of you are struggling today because you don't see God as trustworthy. What can you learn from the Savior today? Well, first we can learn that God is our Father. He cares for us. He's holy, yes. He's in charge, yes. Sovereign, yes. But he cares for us. And as Pastor David pointed out, he is good. And that God doesn't mind our honesty with him. And that we can press into a place of honesty and candor with him. And somehow the Holy Spirit meets us there. And ultimately, God wants us to arrive at the place where Jesus arrived. After all of this is said and done, not my will, but your will be done. What can you do this week to begin to walk this out? Maybe as you pray, even though you're accustomed to saying, Father, maybe you really bring to the front of your mind as you pray and as you utter those words, my Father, maybe you bring with it all of the meaning of those words that Jesus had. Abba, Father, Sir, Daddy, you're in charge, but you care for me. Maybe that's at the front of our mind as we pray. And maybe this week we ditch the facades and the fancy prayers and maybe we just come and bring only the real stuff to God this time. We bring our whole authentic self to him this time. And maybe this is a week where we start and end with a posture that says, Lord, not my will, 
but yours be done. It's a little homework for you this week. We'll unpack more in this series as we go week by week. But let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we can trust you. We can trust you. And for those of us who our circumstances are telling us something else, Lord, Lord, help us to doubt our doubts this morning when it comes to you. Help us to take our cues from Jesus. May we show up honestly before you this week. And even as as we continue to worship here and as we sit in your presence and allow you to continue to minister to us, Lord, may this even take place even now. Your spirit is in this room. It's tilling the soil of our heart. And Father, as the soil of our hearts is tilled more and more, may your seeds of truth go deep and take root. Come Holy Spirit. Do your work, Lord. Let's just sit here for a minute. Come Holy Spirit. Do your work, Lord. Help us to trust you. Help us to know you as Jesus knew you. Help us to know the Lord, even when we can't see it, you're working. Help us to experience you as a way maker, as a promise keeper, as a light in the darkness, with all sufficient grace. Come Holy Spirit.